The sermon text this morning will be from Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Have you ever been charged with a crime? Have you ever stood before a judge and, and had evidence presented against you? Have you heard a judge say you're guilty as charged? I have. It was... Uh, young, I was drunk, I was disorderly and destructive to another person's property. It was not one of the finer moments of my life. It was a, a moment that I regret deeply. But it came to a point where I heard those words, you're guilty, as charged. I was accountable. My mouth was shut, said nothing. That's the scene the apostle is drawing all of us to. A, a day standing before a judge where your mouths are shut. All of humanity. If you've been here over the past number of weeks, you've seen Paul draw this line, <clears throat> this argument, exposing all of humanity to being guilty of sin, being under sin. We saw that last week in verse 9 of chapter 3 when he said that all are under sin, all alike, Jew or Gentile, were under sin. We, he presented evidence that we failed to love God. None of us are righteous before him. We haven't loved our neighbor. Our mouths are open graves, he says. We are alike under sin. This is the judgment of humanity. This is our human dilemma. You know, one Russian author wrote that I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a, a good man is like, and it's terrible. That's our dilemma. I'm thankful, actually, Christianity is, is that bold and that truthful on the nature of the heart. No other religion is. No other religion speaks to the nature of man and women like Christianity does. So what's our hope? Where's our solution? Uh, who's going to remove the guilt from us? Well, this is the beauty of but now. Paul, <clears throat> in one sentence, it's one Greek sentence, but it's a paragraph, and it's filled with dense theological words. He offers us hope that a God in heaven pardons. He pardons us. For this guilt. He's a forgiving God. 
Paul leads us to the gospel. You know, this, this paragraph, according to many respected theologians, is considered to be the greatest paragraph in the Bible. Because it gives us the hope, it, it answers the question, how can man, who is under the legitimate judgment of God, be made right with God? How can unrighteous men and women be made right with a holy God? So we're going to look at this passage that Kimmy has read, and I want to ask the text three questions. Who can be pardoned? Who can be pardoned? Who among us will, will hear his pardoning voice? And then secondly, how can he pardon us? Legitimately, how? A righteous God can pardon people such as us. And then, and then why? Maybe you don't even think about this, but why would he want to do it? We can look at our own souls and recognize the struggle we have to bring forgiveness to people. Why would he want to do it? So three questions, who and how does he do it and, and why? And, and I do want us to say, why would he do it? So, so who does he pardon? <clears throat> well, look with me at the text. You, you see that he speaks about there in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. That's your first big, dense theological word. Talked about it last week, the righteousness of God. It means to be in right relationship with God. It means to be rightly aligned with God. So, so if, I'm, if I'm right with the law, then I don't have, I don't have crimes against me. If I'm right with the bank, I've paid my debts. I'm, I'm in good standing. If I'm right with my friend, then we have an, an amiable relationship. There's no conflict there. So when he says the righteousness of God, he's talking about are we right with God? There's a righteousness of God that is manifest apart from the law that we can be right with God. <clears throat> but it's apart from the law. It, it's not through the law. So we saw that last week that by no one, uh, no one is justified by works of the law. You cannot put yourself, because of these previous chapters and the guilt we have of sin, you can't make yourself right with God. You can't observe the law enough. You can't follow, whether it's a divine law or a natural law. You cannot keep that law, he says. Now remember what the law does. The law awakens sin in us. It makes us aware of what we're actually doing contrary to God. It doesn't save us, it wakens. But, but notice how Paul continues. Because if you're left wondering, well, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe I'm a little different than these other folks, and I, maybe I can keep the law a little better than somebody else. Notice what he says in, 20, in 23, he says, all have sinned, all have sinned. I mean, that's kind of a summary statement for what he said from verses 1, chapter 118, all the way through 320. All have sinned, that's all of us. We're all under that. And then he says, we've fallen short of the glory. Now, what does that mean? We fall short of the glory of God. Well, I, I think it means back in chapter 1, when he convicts us that we have exchanged the glory of God, the glory of an immortal God, for the glory of, of images resembling men, that we've traded in our absolute foolishness, because sin does make you stupid, in our absolute foolishness, we have traded the glory of God and delighting in that, and we've pursued the trinkets of men. We've pursued the temporal pleasures of this life. We have fallen short of that glory. 
And folks, that's all of us. That's all of us. Do you agree with this assessment? I mean, do you, do you agree with Paul's argument at this point? That apart from the law, there is no righteousness? Or that through the law, there's no righteousness? Do you agree? Do you, do you, do you see your moral inability to approach God? I mean, do you see your absolute moral insufficiency as it were to climb a ladder to somehow be in a place with God? Or do you think you're a little bit different than somebody else? Do you think you've been in the faith just long enough? Or do you think you have defeated this many sins that somehow you might just be the exception? If you do, that's not Christianity. Christianity teaches the hopelessness of man apart from God, and achieving a right relationship with God. That's all of us. It doesn't matter the sin. You can be a hedonist, you can be, you can be a moralist, you can be absolutely unrighteous, or you can be really quite self-righteous. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can be beautiful, you can be intelligent, you can have a great station in life. Whatever, however you want to categorize humanity, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A bishop of Durham in England in the early part of the 20th century wrote these words. He says, the harlot, the liar, the murderer, they are short of it. That is, they're short of the glory of God. He says, but so are you. He says, perhaps they're at the bottom of a mine and you are on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. Do you get that? That's all of us. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher in London in the mid-20th century, and he said these words, he says, no man, no woman can be a Christian without realizing his utter hopelessness. God pardons those who come to faith in him. Who does God pardon? He pardons those who come not by works of the law, but by those who come by faith. You see that as we read on. He says that now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. There's no different tracks for people. So we, God will pardon us. He will forgive us as we come by faith. Now, uh, Three times he says that. Did you notice it? Actually, twice in verse 22. He says it in verse 25. And he says it again in verse 26. Now, when you see something repeated that frequently, you're supposed to kind of, your antenna goes up and you say, I want to pay attention to this. He says that, that he will pardon those who come by faith. Now, what is faith? When I speak about faith, I don't mean it's kind of the intense feelings of God. I, I don't mean it's a high regard for God. I don't think it means just having kind of faith that there's things out beyond uh, the five senses. And when he speaks about faith, he's speaking about a trust. And he's speaking about a trust in the person and the work of Christ. There's a reliance on it. When John Patton, who was a missionary to the South Pacific, when he had to translate the word faith into the language of the people, he used this word lean. He, he was trying to figure out what word should I choose and and at the time, one of the, the natives that he was speaking to, one of the people that were there of that island, kind of leaned on the chair. and it, it thought, It's like putting all your weight on something, relying on it. 
John Calvin gave a little bit more nuanced definition of what faith is. He says it's really made up of three things. He says it's first having knowledge of the gospel. You, you do have to know the facts of the gospel. And, and then secondly, it's an assent to those facts. You, you agree they're true. You agree that, yeah, these are the facts and they're true. But that's not faith yet, because the devils are with us at this point. They know the facts of the gospel, and they know that they're true. The third part is it's trust. You have to trust. You have to rely. You have to count on. You have to throw the weight of your soul. You have to throw the security of your life upon Christ alone. That's what he means by faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, spoke to this in, in, in a helpful way of describing it. He says, he says this, we can put it this way, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself, no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He doesn't look at what he is now. He doesn't even look at what he hopes to be as a result of his efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. That's what faith is. Who does God pardon? He pardons those who come in faith to him. Now, this isn't new news, folks. This isn't New Testament news. This is the part of the Bible. It's all part of the Bible. That's why Paul says there, he says that this has been manifest. The law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. This isn't something new. Don't you remember back in chapter 1? Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 are really just being played back out here in this passage. In chapter 1, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed. See the same language. And it's been revealed from faith for faith. For the just shall live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk, chapter 2. So he's showing us there is a unity and a continuity in the scriptures. This is the same way. Perhaps Paul was talking to the Jew, thinking that Paul's introducing something new here not introducing anything new at all so god pardons those who come by faith now some of you may say well that seems too easy you know it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what you've accomplished it can come at the end of life the beginning of life it seems too easy you don't have to produce anything you don't have to have all these works to show to god it seems too easy well i'd ask you to think about that I'd say it's pretty hard. It's free, but I think it's hard. You know, can you admit your absolute moral inability? Can you admit that you have nothing in yourself? You can be given 32,000 lifetimes, and you could not measure up to being made right with God. That's not easy to admit. It's not, it's not easy for an adult to assume the role of a child, to assume I'm weak, I'm dependent, I'm unable. I can't do it. It's a very hard thing to do. I think about when Jesus, and I mentioned this last week, but I think it bears repeating. When Jesus was giving a Sermon on the Mount, the first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. And what does this mean? Well, poverty of spirit isn't speaking about material terms. It's not speaking about emotional terms. It's not speaking about psychological terms. Being poverty, having poverty of spirit is moral terms. You do not have the moral goodness. You don't have the assets. You don't have the bank balances of, of moral goodness with which you can be made right to God. And you're admitting that. 
You're admitting that I am poor of spirit. I don't have anything to impress you, God. He says, then you see the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said that tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Can you imagine how that would sound to a religious man, a prostitute? She sleeps with men to make her living, that she's getting ahead of you. And the tax collectors, the ones that are gouging their countrymen, the traitors, oh, by the way, they're getting, and you'd be thinking, well, I go to church, I, I mean, I look at all the things I've done, I've been in the faith a long time. And they're getting ahead of the kingdom? They're getting into the kingdom ahead of me? Can you imagine how that would just, would just scrape you? That's what he says. C.S. Lewis adds to this, he says, prostitutes are in no danger of finding the present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous, they are in that danger. Have you come by faith to Christ? Are you still partially leaning a little bit on who you are or what you become or who you hope to be? Your faith is to be rooted in Christ and rooted in, in Christ alone. It's on his work and on his person, his life, that we are saved. So who does God pardon? God pardons the man or the woman who come by faith in Christ Jesus. That's who he pardons. Those who will appear to God and, and trusting in all that they've become and all that they've changed and the way they've pulled themselves out of the pit of life, there's no room at the table for you. It's by faith, absolutely dependent upon the mercy of God that has been shown to us in Christ. Okay, secondly, how does he do this? I, I, I mean, turning a blind eye to sin seems unjust. Uh, does God just wave his wand of forgiveness over us? How does he bring about a forgiveness? How does a righteous God look at unrighteous people and say, I welcome you, I forgive you? Now, please don't think that, well, God can just do that. <clears throat> he, can just, he can just move on from it. But you know there's something fundamental to us that we just don't buy that really. I mean, if, if there's a judge down at the district court in Raleigh, and he just has a soft spot for criminals, and they come by him and he just says, you know what, you had a tough life. You can go ahead and go. You can go ahead and go. Now, it may be, it may be kind of cute you know, as we're thinking about here, but let's say they broke in and burned your house down and took everything you owned, and they're the ones before the judge. And the judge looks at him and says, you know what, you've had a bad go of it. Why don't we just let you go? What would be in you? I mean, I, I confess that I want to climb out of my car when some guy goes blowing down 540 like a crazy man. I pray there's an officer right around the corner. <laughs> I want justice. You want justice. We know that. And when justice isn't, we feel what? It's unjust. So how can God, a holy God who has been sinned against by us, how can he forgive? He cannot just, otherwise his own character would be darkened by injustice. So he tells us, look in 24 and, and partly into 25. He says this, he says, we're justified by his grace as a gift. Now, justified is your second big theological word in this text. Uh, justified is like righteous. It's the same root, it's the same Greek 
root word, this idea of being justified means being declared righteous. You are positionally now right with God. He's made that declaration. Being justified means you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're right with God. Everything's great with you and God. He's justified you by grace as a gift. God justified you. God did it. It isn't an act of man over time. It's an act of God. He's de- he didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. He has given it to you as a gift. That's the nature of a gift, right? A gift is given by the pleasure and the will of the giver. So God is that giver, and he has given us this justification surely by his grace. It's free. You cannot earn a free gift. He's given it to us. I mean, just let that soak in your mind for a minute. He has forgiven us by grace. I mean, doesn't that just soften you to other people? I mean, doesn't that just, wow, I've been given this incredible gift. It it just kind of makes you happy, and and that happiness spills around to those that you're with. It also humbles me. There is nothing I brought to the table other than my sin, but there's nothing I brought. I'm humbled by his graciousness. I I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I'm I'm drawn to people like I'm not so quick to judge one another by our differences because of what I've just received and what you've just received. It should really change the culture of a church. I mean, if we're drinking the cup of grace every day, it would change the culture of a church. It would really, we'd look at life differently. But it justifies us by his grace. But how? It doesn't really answer the question. We just kind of see the source of it. It's from God. And he's done it freely, but how did he do it? Well, look at the next word. He says this. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's your third big word today, redemption. When you think redemption, your mind probably goes back to the Exodus, where God had redeemed the people out of slavery in Egypt. He bought them, he brought them to himself, and made them his own. And that would be a good reference to think about. But redemption itself had a broader meaning. It was a term in the marketplace. It was a commercial term where you buy slaves, you buy back slaves. The word itself means to release with a payment. And and, and so you see the marketplace where you buy a slave. In fact, that was baked into the law of Israel, the kinsman redeemer, where a, a man or a woman could buy a relative from slavery for a price and to bring them into freedom. Uh, the, the part of the root word is also seen in the word ransom. You know, you think about when Jesus said that I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You see that same kind of picture that God is redeeming us. He's buying us back. He's taking us out from slavery to sin. He's taking out from slavery to selfishness. In my absolute foolishness, he's retrieving me for a price. And he's bringing me into the position of freedom for a price. And we see that price in the word propitiation. It's your next big theological word, propitiation. What in the world does that mean? Your your Bible may have expiation. It may have sacrifice of atonement. This is a critical word. I'm not pronouncing it to show you that I can. It's a very important word. It means more than the remission of sins. It means more than the negation of sin. It does mean that. It does mean that, that by his blood or on the cross that he brought forgiveness to the sins. He removed our sins, he put them upon himself, and he died for those sins. It means that, but more. That's only only negative if you think about it. 
if I'm absolutely in debt, and you come and you pay all my bills for me, I am super thankful. Anybody want to? No. I would be very thankful. The reality is, it wouldn't be putting any money in my account. I, I, I would still be zero. I wouldn't have any money. What propitiation teaches is that not only did he pay for our debt, but he bore the wrath of God. He turned God's favor. He satisfied the righteous anger that God had against us for our sin so that now he's no longer disfavored in posture towards us. He now is favored towards us. Jesus has turned the wrath of God. He's satisfied the wrath of God that God is now happy with us. Boom, your account is loaded. Not only your debts are paid, your accounts are raised. You're now in good standing with God. That's the positive. There's a righteousness that he attributes to you. He sees you now as he sees his own son. That this is God's final and ultimate act of sacrifice. God has justified, God has redeemed, and then God himself has propitiated himself through the death of Christ. God satisfied himself with you now. That's how he can save us. That's incredible. I mean, we sang so much of it in our songs. I mean, when you think about the propitiating death of Christ, that the wrath of God had its full vent and fury upon Christ, who is infinite and glorious and able to make us righteous. He declared us righteous. What's this mean? When you think about this, how can God pardon us? You know, we see who he's pardoning. He's pardoning all those coming to him by faith, not by works, but by faith alone. And then for them, he pours it out on the Son. He forgives us. That's the first thing I want you to walk away. If you're a Christian here, you've been forgiven. Let that sink in because we are so effective about dragging our past sins with us. He has forgiven you. We sang last week, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Thy bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. That's Christ advocating for us. You are forgiven. The song goes on. His His precious blood to plead. They strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cried, nor let that ransomed, that redeemed sinner die. To God I'm reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. Can't fear God anymore in the sense of fright over sin. With confidence I will now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's the change, the transaction. That's what Christ has done. You've been forgiven. But you haven't just been forgiven, you've been declared righteous. You are positionally right with God right now. Now, let me explain that, because that's a declaration that God has made. Now, you think, but I'm, but I'm not righteous, Tom. I mean, I'm a sinner. I sinned coming here. I'm going to be sinned leaving here. He didn't, I, I didn't say he made you righteous. I said he declared you righteous. Big difference. Making you righteous is what happens in sanctification as we grow into holiness as we're becoming more and more like Christ, finished on that day that we see him face to face. He's making us righteous now. He's making us into be what he has already declared us to be, so you know he's going to do it. 
Because he's already said you'll be righteous. I've declared you to be righteous. And I'm the one getting you there. So he's making us righteous. That's different. Here he's, he's declared us righteous. He's told us what he's going to do. This is confidence for us to fight sin. This is giving us confidence to know that God loves us. This is giving us confidence to face whatever the world brings to the table. Because he's declared us righteous. But also when you look at the propitiation, the redemption, you know you're loved. You're loved. I know so many of you, in fact, Daniel, we were praying at 7.30 this morning. He was praying that you would understand this very thing. We're so quick to assume I don't know the Bible enough. I don't, I'm still struggling with this sin. I'm still angry at this person. I still haven't achieved this goal. I still haven't pulled myself out of this box. I'm still not like that other person. And we listen to ourselves and our, our own voices just ringing our heads, condemning us. And yet God's saying, I've loved you. you. You can't hear it more than in 1 John. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God. That wavers. That comes and goes. He says, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It's in the very propitiation you see the love of God so crystal clear that he's loved you. You need to listen to what God says to you more than you need to listen to yourself speak to you. But not only that, there's even more. In this, you are secure in him. You're secure. The salvation that he has wrought in Christ is secure as Christ. That's why we come in faith in Christ. I love Charles Spurgeon. You know, he has an amazing ability, pastor in the 19th century in London, amazing ability to put truths and pictures that you will carry with you. Listen to what he says, speaking of Christ. He says, ah, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother and sister. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. I can hear their trampings now as they traverse the great arches of the bridge of salvation. They come by their thousands, by their myriads, ere since the day when Christ first entered his glory, they come, and yet never a stone has sprung in that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners, and, and some have come at the very last of their days, but the arches never yielded beneath their weight. He says, I will go with them, trusting to that same support. It will bear me over as it has borne them. Beautiful picture of the sufficiency of Christ to secure those whom he has saved for himself. Not one stone of that arch has been moved. That's our hope. Do you have that hope? Do you sense the love of God in your life? Do you find him to have accepted you? Do you trust that you're secure in him? This, this is where the community of faith has got to play a role. We have to help each other. We, we get too easily spiraling into just chaos of mind when we're left to our own devices. We need one another, frankly. I need to hear you tell me these truths. You need to hear me say them to you on Sunday. We need each other. I need you to tell me these things. I need Carol to remind me to isolate and to hide, to go dark. There's just trouble for you. There's just trouble. You're left to your own mind. You need one another. We need each other.
So who does he pardon? He pardons those who come in faith. And, and how does he pardon? He pardons through the redemption that is in Christ as he has put him forth as a propitiation. But why does he do it? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about why he has done it? I just remember Billy Graham, who has, of course, passed away in the last month uh, or two, time's flying, um, said, that's the first question I have for God, why me? Why me? Very humble question, really. It's a humble question of the text. God, why would you do it? I mean, it's not assuming anything. We don't think that we're deserving of it. it. It's birthed out of humility. Why would you do it? Well, look what he says in 25 and 26. Go to the second half of 25, where he says that this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. Uh, it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So, so why has God pardoned the sinner? God pardons the sinner to vindicate his own glorious character. God pardons the sinner in Christ to vindicate his own glorious character. Look, he says that right there in the second half of 25 when he says, it was to show his righteousness because in divine forbearance he has passed over sins, former sins. Think about this for a minute. Think about the Old Testament saints that were in right relationship with God. Think of Abraham. Think of David. Uh, think of Noah. None of these men were perfect, but they were in right relationship. They were saved. They were known by God. God knew them. They were friends of God. They were with God. And yet, what of their sins? Who paid for their sins? David? He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a lousy king at points in times. He abandoned certain points of his fatherhood. And yet he was a friend of God. He established a divine covenant with David, an everlasting covenant. How so, God? He's a sinner. Did God, did you just pass over those? You know, that's what happens. Leaving sins unpunished casts a dark shadow on the character of God. You know, turn to, to turn a, a, a blind eye to sin is ungodly. It's unjust. I mean, who here would agree with the completely, the completely permissive parent who, who never engages their child over any sort of wrong behavior, who, who never chides their child for destructive action, who never speaks to their child in a way to give them direction to life, who never listens to their child to see how they're thinking? To, who, who would honor a parent like that? Completely submissive, whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. <clears throat> God is upholding his righteousness by punishing the sins of David and all the saints before and us that Christ displays and vindicates that God is in fact righteous, fully just, fully righteous, no blind eye. Everybody is treated, all sin is treated the same with the righteous judgment of God. For the Christian here, it just fell on Jesus Christ and not on you. For the others, if you're not a Christian here, there will be a day that you stand before God and you will give an account of your life. And the only thing that you will have is to commend yourself, is to commend to him is your life. And do you feel that that is adequate after all that I've just said to satisfy him? That he would say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. But for the Christian, that has fallen on Christ. So, why does he pardon? To vindicate his character as righteous, but also as merciful. Notice he's just, but he's the justifier. He's the one that has justified us. He's the one 
that has brought forgiveness. He's the one that saved us. Listen, I know that Jesus was the propitiating sacrifice, but it was God's plan. God justifies, God redeems, God loves. It was God's plan. He's merciful to us. See, in Christ, you see the wrath of God and you see the mercy of God. Neither are compromised. Both are satisfied. You think about this when you think of Psalm 85.10, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's what the psalmist says. They kiss each other. They come together perfectly in Christ. Doesn't this just leave you wondering over how God could be so great? <clears throat> Cranfield was a earlier century, uh, 20th century scholar on Romans, and he says, the purpose of Christ being a mercy seat was to achieve a divine forgiveness which is worthy of God and consonant with his righteousness in that it does not insult God's creature man by any suggestion that he is, after all, of but small consequence. You can't help but feel loved. The sacrifice was worthy as to the character of God, and yet it shows us the value he has placed upon us. So when you think about why it should confront us in our own carelessness with sin, if you're a Christian here, you're confronted, you're recalibrating right now on what you do with sin. And we can bust sin up into big and small and manageable. We can look at sin as kind of, Pet sins, these aren't that bad because they're not in having the same effect. But here when we see that God vindicates his own righteousness by the punishment of sin, what ought we to think of sin? <clears throat> Should we be casual about it? Now, I'm not saying you've got to be sinless here. I don't think that's possible in this life. I'm just trying to get your attitude to change. <clears throat> I'm trying to get you to be more serious about fighting sin and saying, if this is what it did to the Savior then my approach to it ought to be different. You know, Isaac Ambrose was a, a divine <clears throat> theologian. Sorry, it's an expression for a theologian. He was a theologian, Puritan, 18th century in England. He said these words. <clears throat> he says, When I but think of those bleeding veins, bruised shoulders, scourged sides, furrowed back, harrowed temples, nailed hands and feet, and then consider that my sins were the cause of it all, methinks I should no more I should need no more arguments for self-hating. He said, Christians, would not your hearts rise against him that should kill your father, mother, brother, wife, husband, dearest relation in all the world? Oh, then how should your hearts and your souls rise against sin? Surely sin it was that murdered Christ, that killed him, who instead of all relations, who is a thousand, thousand times dearer to you than father, mother, husband, child, or whomever, one thought of this should, methinks, be enough to make you say, as Job did, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Oh, what is that cross on the back of Christ? My sins. What is that thorny crown upon his head? My sins. What is that nail in his hand? My sins. So the passage reminds us as Christians, we take seriously a life of holiness and a pursuit for it. But also, not just are we reminded of the righteousness of God, but we're humbled, we're confounded. I mean, we're left wondering, God, still, why would you have been so gracious? That's why Paul, in the very next verse, says, what then of boasting? It is excluded. We have nothing but to boast in the Lord our God, to just thank him and rejoice in him and, and just allow the mystery of his divine mercy 
to occupy our thoughts more than they do. <clears throat> so for the Christian, when you look at the text, you see who does he pardon? He pardons those who come in faith to him, apart from works of law. How does he pardon? He pardons through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ who became for us a propitiation. And why does he do it? He does it to uphold his glorious and his gracious character so that you will rejoice and delight in him and find him to be a thousand times better than the greatest pleasure that will be put before your eyes in this life. He is better than that. And he is worthy of your life. And if you're not a Christian here, faith apart from works, the humbling of self, asking for grace and forgiveness, that is how the guilt and the shame of your life is removed. I know I threw a lot at you. Most preachers can take three, four, five, six sermons to preach this passage. So let's pray just silently right now, go before God and ask for grace to, that his spirit would slowly kind of do like a slow release of the truth of this passage in our soul, convicting us of some, and assuring us of his love. And then I'll close this in just a moment. <clears throat>